This month, COVID emergency measures are finally expiring in the U.S. and around the world. Make no mistake, COVID is still here. But this new phase means the end of things like federal vaccine mandates and free COVID tests. Over the next two episodes, we're going to unpack what all this means for us. To start, we're turning to one of my colleagues here on the Post's well-being desk, Richard Sima. Richard's a neuroscientist turned science journalist, and he's been trying to understand how our brains are remembering the pandemic and what we've gone through. Just thinking back on the past three years, I realized that there's a lot that I am forgetting. And I suspect that this is the case for many people, simply because of the quirks of human memory. For me, it's just, there's a time before the pandemic and after. Most of my memories about the pandemic are right when it started, and then it's like, nothing. (laughs) We would like to just forget that time because it was very tough. Seems like a lifetime ago, but it was just a couple years ago. But it seems like a different world. Sitting on the couch watching, uh, what's the show called? What was the, the Tiger Show? And it's just fascinating to me that, of course, this is such a historic, important event that impacted us all, and yet we're not going to remember many of the details, many of the experiences we had. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Anahat O'Connor. It's Monday, May 8th. Today, Richard digs into why our brains have forgotten so much about the pandemic and how we can still honor and learn from our experiences. Richard spoke with Alahe Azadi. Even just the idea that this has been three years is wild to me. Like, have our brains just turned into Swiss cheese? Like, there's so much we've just forgotten. I don't think it's... Um, something particular to the pandemic, although maybe the pandemic sort of makes it more apparent how much we forget usually. Mm. And the pandemic, of course, is unique because there's just so much that happened. There's like so many new things we had to keep track of, like new masks, new vaccines, new social distancing requirements, or you know the new variants, the names of each of them. It's just a lot. And speaking with memory researchers, it's like, even if it's something so important and so emotionally salient, it's hard to remember everything. It's hard to learn everything. Um, But from the other side, it's like, we have all these distinctive emotional events. And a lot of our days were probably still even more repetitive than normal because we couldn't go as many places. We couldn't see as many people. We couldn't make these distinctive memories as easily uh, because we're trying to stay home and stay safe. Yeah. So, Richard, take us inside the brain into what exactly is happening here because it does still seem remarkable that we are losing our pandemic memories given that, one, it didn't happen that long ago, and two, it, it was a major disruptive event that changed the way a lot of us lived our lives, like, you know, mask mandates and lockdowns and so many other things. So, Richard, what is happening exactly? Like, what makes it so hard to store these memories? Can, can you explain how the brain stores memories and remembers things? Yeah, very generally speaking, there are three 
I guess, phases of memory. One is you have to encode it. So you're getting new information. You know, your hippocampus is an important memory center that is doing some chemical changes to the neurons that encode this new information. And that's the first step, but most of this is not retained for long periods of time unless you go through the second step, which is memory consolidation, where you sort of rehearse and replay these memories in the hippocampus. And then, you know, you have changes in the cortex where the memories can be stored more long-term. And finally, you have retrieval of those memories, which activates the same hippocampus and cortical neurons that, you know, the memories are stored on, and that sort of allows you to replay it. During this step of retrieval, you're not just getting a, a tape recording back of what happened, but you're actually, you know, replaying those same circuits in the brain, which allows you to rewrite the memory. So it's reconsolidating, which, you know, strengthens it, but also means that the memory is modifiable. So it's the case every single time you're reliving the memory, but also modifying it, perhaps. You know, the general concept is something that's distinctive, something that's emotional, tends to be really good for holding on to in the long term. Like, it's remarkable that we could remember things from decades ago. But even those types of memories can be subject to forgetting. There's one interesting study, um, one of the researchers I spoke to, Professor William Hurst at the New School, conducted after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And you were looking at, a, obviously, a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the... And, you know, this was a very, you know, memorable, like, terrifying day for those who lived through it. And it's right. a single day of a few events. And he and the researchers that he worked with did a really smart thing, I thought, which was interviewing people like just a few days after it happened. Where were you? What were you doing? How did you feel when you heard about these attacks? And following up just a year later, like 40% of people got that wrong. Like, they said that they remember doing this thing or they felt this way, but they, that's not what they said when, when asked, like, just a few days afterwards. But they were really confident, you know, that mm. this is, you know, what they remembered. Um, and I just wonder what it's going to be like for us remembering the pandemic, which is not just a single day, not just a few events, what we'll forget and what we'll misremember. Yeah, that's so fascinating because I think it also speaks to this idea of like how accurate our memories are. And when we are recalling something like in the example that you are providing around 9-11, what were they recalling? Like how did how did it change? Did it change based on their like perception of the event in hindsight? I think one general concept with memory that I, I think is really interesting is that, of course, memories are about past events. But Remembering is something you do in the here and now. And it seems that what we're doing, what we feel, our attitudes in the present really distort or really shape how we remember things. 
So in the 9-11 studies, they found, you know, asking about how you felt more closely matched how the participants were feeling right now than actually back then. Mm. So it's, it's something that, you know, we have to keep in mind. <laughs> um, and it's, Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I want to learn more about how exactly we lose memories and what are researchers learning about how the pandemic is affecting that memory loss. Yeah, so going back to the three phases of you know, memory formation, each of those phases can be disrupted and that would impact whether you will be able to remember uh, that memory. You know, if you don't encode something because you're not paying attention, you're not going to have anything to retrieve. And the fact of the matter is you're not going to, you know, you don't pay attention to most things. You probably don't remember the color of the curtains in, you know, your childhood bedroom. Um, because even though that's information that you encountered a lot, you didn't think of it as super important. If you don't consolidate, if you don't relive and rethink about a memory, then it's probably not going to stay with you. And finally, um, retrieving is hard because as you get new information, it might conflict with old information that seems really similar. So, you know, you might have ordered a lot of food during the pandemic, but you don't remember the first time or the seventh time. Uh, you know, everything seems so similar. It's probably just going to be one big mush of like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I generally did this thing to order food. I'm not going to remember the, you know, particular instance. Yeah. And I guess the pandemic also adds uh, more uh, stress to our memories because stress isn't good for those like memory formation steps. It's not good for your sleep, which is important for memory consolidation. And it's also, you know, led to a lot of people developing long COVID or brain fog, mm. which, you know, is its own problem. And it actually brings me to a point that, you know, many of us are forgetting a lot of the pandemic, but there are still a huge subset of people who are, you know, who can't forget because right. they've lost someone or they're dealing with uh, long COVID or they just got COVID or they were on the front lines and dealing with the trauma of, you know, working to fight the pandemic. Yeah. You know, there's going to be stuff that they might want to forget, but probably will still hold on to like many decades down the line. Loneliness. Yeah, I won't forget loneliness, just being alone, having nothing other than just work. I remember the feeling of job insecurity, yeah, and just, like, worried about my future. When I had COVID, it, I don't think I'll ever forget it, just for the symptoms that I had, and I lost a lot of my hair. I still have some side effects, like AFib. It was like three people I knew that was here the day before and gone the next day. And it was due to COVID. And so, yeah, that definitely would be something that I'm going to remember. For me, because I was in it, I was a healthcare. I remember everything in my head all the time. And it's hard mentally to come back from that, too. So I'm still working on it. After the break, 
Alahe and Richard explore what remembering and forgetting the pandemic means at a societal level. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Is there something about a pandemic specifically as a major event, like viruses and disease compared with other major kinds of events that make pandemics hard to remember? Like, is are there any historical lessons that we can draw from? Yeah, I think this goes from the realm of maybe personal memories, like the ones that we tell ourselves or have for our own lives, to what our society's collective memory uh, holds or, you know, seems to be uh, gravitating toward. And the comparison people have been making is to the influenza pandemic of 1918. People die everywhere. Death went creeping through the air. The 1918 pandemic caused the global deaths of probably 50 and maybe up to well, 100 million people, making it the worst natural disaster in all of recorded human history. Which occurred around, you know, the time of World War One, but was largely forgotten, even though this pandemic killed many more people than World War One. And, you know, I spoke with uh, William Hurst about this, and he made the point that we could pass on memories between generations in maybe two ways. One is just word of mouth, like you telling your children or grandchildren about the pandemic and about your experiences. But research shows that these types of oral histories, they last maybe one or two generations. And it's probably the reason why most of us don't know who our great-grandparents are, because those don't get passed down. So we need something that's more durable, that lasts past these few generations. Hmm. So something like cultural artifacts, like movies, plays, museums, or memorials that allow people to come and commemorate and relive and maybe learn something from people who are maybe long gone at that point. Richard, I also wonder if some of that has to do with just like different cultural expectations and like, because there are some cultures around the world that have really strong oral traditions, but it's almost like collectively they have all bought into the idea that memory preservation is very important and we do need to pass down these memories. And there's like almost a sort of like, we are all going to make sure this happens and we're going to protect and preserve it. It's not like an individual thing. It's like a tribal, cultural thing. But I feel like in the context we're talking about, what we're talking about are like individual histories, right? And and when your culture at large isn't really supporting that notion, I can imagine how it's hard to preserve memory. Oh, yeah. I think that's definitely part of the issue, maybe. We noticed that in Asian countries, because they dealt with SARS and MERS, you know, they were more readily accepting of masking again when 
this new coronavirus hit. But, you know, even to that point, like William Hurst was maybe skeptical about whether if you go a few generations without a pandemic, whether even those traditions might, Hmm. or that history might die off. Um, There was an interesting study looking at, you know, like maybe this is a little of a tangent, but looking at how, you know, flooding behavior in the Czech Republic, uh, like those memories of the flood um, influence where people built houses. Like these like once in a hundred year floods, like devastated communities along the rivers. But, you know, so that caused the generation afterwards to build their settlements far from the riverbank. But within one or two generations, they went back down to the river because those memories were lost. The people who went through that flooding event probably weren't around to tell them what a bad idea that was or people wouldn't believe it because they didn't live through it. Yeah. Richard, I'm also wondering about how much of memory loss specifically related to the coronavirus pandemic might be related to trauma. Mm-hmm. Because isn't it true that trauma can go one one of two ways, right? Like we can yeah. deeply remember our traumas or we can completely forget them. Yeah, I think it's really perceptive that you pointed out that there are two ways that trauma could affect the memory. And the first way, I guess, like you might not want to remember, you might not want to rehearse or like, you know, relive these memories, which is what helps strengthen them and becomes something that you can take further into the future. You know, we have a positivity, future thinking bias, where we think, you know, our present selves are in a better state than our past and our future will be even better. So maybe we don't want to think about those like last three years where it was really rough. And so we don't rehearse these memories. But yeah, trauma is something that uh, could also trigger something like PTSD or you're in a prolonged state of grief where you have intrusive memories of things that you want to forget but are just so emotionally powerful that you can't. So it speaks to why forgetting can be adaptive. Right, like a survival technique. Yeah, because you want to be able to take lessons away, but you don't want to relive the worst days of your life um, over and over again, or because that also gets in the way of living now, too. What does it take to remember a mass event like this, like beyond the archives and the historians who have dedicated themselves to this type of work? Like, if we are thinking about the general public. Yeah, I think a memorial is... A really good way of doing it and that's why we have these beautiful moving memorials for like war veterans and instituting it as part of the practice i think also signals how important this event was for our culture and you know there's some difficulty in this because i don't think there's any permanent at least official commemorations for the pandemic yet which might be essential for keeping these memories alive. And one thing that speaking with uh, William Hurst brought up was, you know, after the Holocaust, Israel commemorated it and had the Remembrance Day to memorialize those, you know, who were killed during the Holocaust. But the first Remembrance Day was in 1951, like many years after the Holocaust had ended. And 
it was only mandated as like part of an official commemoration ceremony in 1959, mm. more than a decade. And, you know, it's something that's really important to like, you know, they are required to take two minutes to stop whatever they're doing and remember. And, you know, that's really powerful. But it also speaks to how difficult it is to keep even really important memories alive in the collective consciousness. There are museums now, there are documentaries, there's many things that commemorate the Holocaust. But if you look at surveys of people who are younger and are getting farther and farther from when it happened, there are more people who don't believe it. Mm. despite all these efforts. So it's something that I'm worried about. I'm also, like, the researchers I spoke to were kind of pessimistic that we would even get official commemorative memorials for the pandemic because, you know, maybe governments don't have as much of incentive. Whereas, you know, for Israel and the Holocaust, like, that's part of a cultural identity of their people. But commemorating a pandemic doesn't even have that as an incentive for a government to, you know, make that investment. I know we spent a lot of time talking about how troubling it is that we're forgetting things, but is there anything you find comforting about how our brains are letting go of so many pandemic memories? I, I think it is a way of being resilient, um, that you are able to you know, adapt. You went through something that was really difficult um, and you're able to still look forward and still, you know, figure out what you want to do today, tomorrow, and not necessarily be held back by many of the memories that aren't as relevant today. Um, but also holding on to some of it so you could, like, anticipate things that might come up again in the future. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for this conversation. There's not really an ending to it. You still see the remnants of, like, six feet. The space stay apart from certain things, like there's still those things and certain places around here. I work with children and I have seen a lack in education, um, kids remembering. It's like starting all over when we came back from the pandemic. Learning from scratch. I guess on a personal level, I'd like to remember that it worked out. Like, obviously it didn't work out for a lot of people, but on the personal level, like my friends and family hit the lowest point in our lives and at least emotionally survived it. Richard Sima writes the Brain Matters column for The Post. He spoke with Alahe Azadi. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was produced by Alana Gordon, mixed by Sean Carter, and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to everyone who shared their pandemic memories with Post Reports. Throughout today's episode, we heard from Destiny and Brooke Smith, Tanner and Chandler Cook, V. Welch, Dave Oranger, Tony Roney, Tori Lavelle, Lilith Saylor, 
Julia Roth, Cheryl Bremer, and Anij Ashok. If you like the show, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work that we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Anahat O'Connor. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.